This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Buenos dias, good morning, and welcome to the third Mexico Moving Forward Symposium here at the beautiful campus of UCSD. Welcome to America's Finest vi- Finest City, if you're visiting with us. My name is Laura Castaneda, or Laura, whichever you prefer. I'm a local journalist and also the chair of the communications department at San Diego City College. I've covered the border extensively as a journalist, so it gives me great pleasure to be here today. The Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies at the School of International Relations and Pacific Studies at UC San Diego is pleased to welcome everyone here today. During the day, we're going to hear presentations from experts on progress and challenges in Mexico 20 years after the signing of NAFTA. The presentations will be followed by a moderated discussion, and then we will open up the floor to questions from the audience, our great audience. At this time, I would like to welcome Janet Napolitano. She's the president of the University of California. She was named University of California's 20th president after Public Services Secretary of Homeland Security, Governor of Arizona, Attorney General of Arizona, and U.S. Attorney for the District of Arizona. The recipient of numerous honors, she received the Anti-Defamation League's Institute Service Award in 2012. Also in this section to speak with you this morning is Pradeep Kosla, the Chancellor of UC San Diego. He's a distinguished electrical and computer engineer. He's an elected member of several prestigious academies, including the National Academy of Engineering. Kosla initiated and led UC San Diego's first ever strategic planning process, which created a unifying vision for the campus future. Peter Cowie is the Dean of the School of International Relations and Pacific Studies. He has served as Senior Counselor in the Office of U.S. Trade Representative under President Obama and Chief of the International Bureau of the Federal Communications Commission under President Clinton. He currently sits on the binational expert group appointed by the U.S. and Chinese governments to address technology policy issues involving the two countries. Madam President, if you would like to come up first, welcome. Well, thank you. Uh, It's such a pleasure to be here with you this morning. And I must say, I thought the dinner uh, last night was extraordinary and gave us uh, an opportunity to uh, raise and have some wonderful conversations I'd like to begin this morning with the words of a man who is important both to Mexico and to the University of California. As a young man, he received a Guggenheim Fellowship to study at UC Berkeley. Later, he served as a Mexican diplomat. He wrote poems, essays, world-renowned texts, and a few years before he died, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. The man, of course, was Octavio Paz. He is justifiably celebrated for the contributions he made to world literature and to political thinking. But Octavio Paz is also a man who reflected on and wrote about the connections between California and Mexico. His magnum opus, The Labyrinth of Solitude, begins not in Mexico, but in Los Angeles, a city where he lived for a year as a child. Later in life, Paz wrote about the significance of dialogue, and I quote, 
Democracy is dialogue. Dialogue allows differences to remain, yet at the same time creates an area in which the voices of otherness coexist and interweave. It's in that spirit of dialogue that we gather today. In January, the University of California and Mexico together announced a joint undertaking, the UC Mexico Initiative. UC and Mexico now stand at the beginning of a long learning journey. Because for this partnership to be successful, it must be one of equals, where both sides are engaged and both sides possess true ownership. The UC Mexico initiative is truly a dialogue, but a dialogue accompanied by action. To invoke Octavio Paz, it is an opportunity for dialogue that, quote, creates an area in which the voices of otherness coexist and interweave. And who knows where we will end up. But even if the destination is unknown, the journey will be informative and transformative. We at the University of California are tremendously excited about the opportunities the partnership presents. I've already had a number of meetings, uh, as has uh, the leadership of the University of California, uh, including the chancellor, including the dean here, uh, and with many of our consuls general and and the ambassador in Washington, D.C. Let me just say, there is a world of possibilities before us, but the time is now, the window is open. We should have a sense not only of uh, desire and will to do this, but a sense of urgency in getting it done now. So let's get moving. Uh, let's get moving together, and let's get moving in a way that sets the example for how the partnership between the United States and Mexico should operate. And now it's my pleasure to turn the podium over to Chancellor Kosla. Chancellor? Thank you, President Napolitano, and uh, please join me in welcoming her one more time because she made a special trip just to be here with us. I think, I think our president's uh, presence uh, on our campus, and especially for this symposium, clearly is indicative of the UC system's uh, support for deeper ties with Mexico, and also indicative of UC San Diego's support both for the UC system and for deeper ties with Mexico. It's a great honor to be here. It's so good to see many of you. I saw some of you last evening. I hope that you slept well. Uh, this is a great symposium. As I was looking at uh, what's going to happen during the course of the day, uh, it is worse than my own schedule because you're not going to have any time to even go to the restroom. It's like a jam-packed day with really high-impact, high-intensity speakers and on a topic which was extremely relevant 20 years ago, and it's equally relevant, if not more, today. And uh, this is a, NAFTA is a very important topic, and I think we at UC San Diego and the, the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies uh, within the school of IRPS has taken a lead role in developing a scholarship uh, around this topic and around Mexico as a country, and that's why we, our Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies is so well known. It's also one of the largest residential programs in the country, uh, it has uh, welcomed about 600 uh, visitors during the last 33 years. It has been in, in existence. And it was founded pretty much at the same time as our school of IRPS, which is around 1979. So we have a very long history of uh, working with our neighboring country. 
Now, Mexico is a very interesting country for many, many reasons, as you all know. And it's hard for me to tell you anything that you don't know because nearly half the audience are very senior people from Mexico. So please uh, pardon my... Uh, you pardon my telling you the facts, which you know better, of course. So it's the 15th largest economy in the top 15 economies in the world today, and by 2050, it's going to be top 10 economies. I think it just makes logical sense that being our neighbor to the south, we really have a very deep working uh, relationship, and we have very deep historical ties going back uh, a long time ago. Uh, secondly, uh, Mexico graduates more engineers than the state of California. So, and that is really significant because if you look at the U.S. economy, it's been driven mainly by science and technology. So I imagine the Mexican economy over time is going to grow and be driven by science and technology. The number of universities has nearly doubled in the last decade or so. So it is logical that what our president said, that we have deeper ties, not only as two countries, but with the UC system and all the universities in Mexico become relevant. My point to you is just one that I want to make. So if you look at the history of this country, our economic development post-World War II, which is the dominant period of our economic development, has been driven by universities, by investments in research and development at universities, by investments in PhDs uh, at universities who go out and create companies, Google being a great example. So as you, the leaders in Mexico, the policymakers think about it. I want you to look at the U.S. and learn a little bit or at least tell us what we did right and what we didn't do right in terms of our policy of integrating, uh, building great research universities, integrating sub policies to create economic development and tying the two closely so that the universities are not independent of society on the outside and our companies come from the universities. So that is my real goal. And I think economic development was the goal of NAFTA, done in a different way. It is the goal of every country right now. And we stand here uh, ready, able, and willing to help. In fact, eager to help. And UC San Diego especially because of our location and our geography. So thank you very much and welcome. And it's now my pleasure, my honor, to introduce uh, Dean Peter Cowie, without who this symposium would not happen. Peter? Good morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to see so many friends, especially friends from Mexico, here today. Uh, we're gathered uh, today uh, and so fortunate to have uh, the living proof before your eyes of the dynamic leadership of the University of California and the partnership between our President Napolitano and Chancellor Kosla, who together have made this deep commitment both to assuring that the University of California will remain the greatest university system in the world and achieve new uh, roles of importance to society, and also to building this partnership between the United States and Mexico in this rapidly evolving world. I'd like to thank uh, our lead sponsors for today, without whose support this would not be possible, and they include SEMPRA, the SIMSA Group, and Sunroad Automotive. When we created Mexico Moving Forward, and this is our third symposium, our goal was to have an annual forum for convening scholars and leaders in practice to undertake the type of open dialogue that can only occur in a university environment where there is no underlying agenda politically or economically. Instead, we are trying to encourage the deepest and most creative thought searching for better understanding of the issues facing society. 
We're fortunate that at UC San Diego, because of early decisions of the leadership of the university, because of the commitment of our School of International Relations and Pacific Studies, and uh, the creation of the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies, that we've had the honor to help build that dialogue over the years. Today, we're going to be looking at many of the fundamental economic and social trends confronting our two countries, both in terms of decisions being made in Mexico and in terms of our interdependent growth and evolution in this rapidly changing world economy and a world where the technology underpinnings of our everyday life are evolving rapidly in front of our eyes. We hope that that conversation, along with the recognition of the cultural aspects that also tie together our two societies, will lead to an extraordinary moment of discovery for everybody in this room. Finally, I'd like to say that at the School of International Relations and Pacific Studies, we're especially proud that our students are deeply engaged in this conversation as part of their everyday training. We believe that by training professional leaders who can reach across the worlds of public policy, management, international relations, and ground them in the hardest-nosed, toughest-thinking, empirical and analytic techniques, that they can respond to this changing society and really help provide that next generation of leadership that both of our countries are relying on to achieve the transformation that we believe is so vital to both of our countries' interests. We thank you for your interest and commitment. We look forward to the conversation today, and I thank all the participants in the symposium for taking the time and effort out of their busy schedules to join us today. Thank you. I join you in welcoming all of our scholars and participants today. Dr. Antonio Ortiz Mena is the head of the Section of Economic Affairs at the Mexican Embassy in Washington, D.C. He was a professor of international relations at Centro de Investigación y Docencia Económicas, or CID, and held chair of the International Relations Department for three years and was a member of Mexico's NAFTA negotiation team. Welcome. Thank you. Buenos dias. Good morning, everyone. I am uh, Antonio Ortiz, the head of economic affairs at the Embassy of Mexico, and it really is an honor to be here with uh, President Napolitano, with uh, Chancellor Josla and Dean uh, Peter uh, Cowie. Uh, Ambassador Eduardo Medina Mora asked me to convey his best wishes for a very successful symposium and for a vigorous research and outreach agenda for the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies and the UC system in general in the coming years. President Napolitano alluded to this, and I think there's a huge opportunity right before us, and we will grasp it. We will grasp it. I truly am among friends. Uh, many, many of those of you in the audience uh, I've seen in different uh, eras of uh, my life during the NAFTA negotiations at CIDE, at the Embassy of Mexico these uh, past years, uh, former professors, former students. So in a way, this is a very emotional uh, moment for me. And I'm also a graduate of UC San Diego. Uh, I spent about six years here. I, I earned my PhD the hard way you know, uh, here at uh, UCSD. But it's, it's, it's worth it. It's, it's, it's worth it. So I'm very, very proud to be here as a UCSD uh, graduate. 
at the symposium, we will learn about the arts and culture of uh, contemporary Mexico from the creators and artists themselves. We will hear a plurality of voices and views on NAFTA and on North American developments on domestic reforms in Mexico, which are aimed at boosting productivity, economic growth, and employment in Mexico. We will hear about the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, in which the three North American countries are participating, and which will result in very, very important rules for international economic engagement in the 21st century. We will also hear about the Pacific Alliance between Mexico, Colombia, Chile, and Peru, which is a very pragmatic and results-oriented model of open regionalism. And surely we will hear about engaging with China. I think this is a critically important issue for Mexico and for North America as a whole. Now I believe that UCSD is uniquely poised to undertake path-breaking and rigorous research and outreach in all these topics with the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies, CELAS, the Center for Iberian and Latin American Studies, the Institute of the Americas, IRPS. So both the venue and the topics that will be addressed today make for a very powerful combination, indeed. Given that the, in 2014 is the 20th anniversary of NAFTA's entry into force, and the North American Leaders Summit took place just about two weeks ago, I will center my remarks on where we see Mexico in the context of North America now and about North America in the future. An old African saying states that there are two ideal times to plant a tree, 20 years ago and right now. <laughs> well, we did plant a tree 20 years ago with NAFTA. And NAFTA represented a, a very big leap forward in the strategic outlook and the rules government economic interaction in North America. In the next section, a very distinguished panel will assess NAFTA. But I do want to underscore just how forward-looking the agreement was at its time. We need only recall the 1992 presidential debates in which a famous Texan and feisty independent candidate to the U.S. presidency Ross Perot said that NAFTA would create a giant sucking sound. I cannot do a very good Texan accent, but maybe you can imagine it. As uh, NAFTA sent U.S. jobs to Mexico because of wage differentials between both countries. At the same time, some groups in Mexico also feared a sucking sound, but in the exact opposite direction. They thought that Mexico would lose jobs because U.S. corporations were larger and had easy access to capital and technology. We were really treading upon new ground. There was no precedent for such a far-reaching trade agreement between a developing country and two developed countries. And by its scope and coverage, NAFTA was, in fact, the most advanced free trade agreement in the world. Now, assessing NAFTA has become somewhat of a cottage industry. But if one focuses on NAFTA's pre preamble, if you judge NAFTA on its own terms, the countries state that they seek to create an expanded and secure market for the goods and services produced in their territories to establish clear and mutually advantageous rules governing their trade and to ensure a predictable commercial framework for business planning and investment. If we focus on that, I think that NAFTA has been a clear success. Intra-NAFTA trade was about $288 billion in 1993, the year before NAFTA went into force, and it is now over $1 trillion, about 273% increase. 
bilateral trade between Mexico and the U.S. went from about $80 billion to about $500 billion annually, which is about $1 million per minute. And that means that by the time I finish speaking, about 10 to 15, minutes, uh, 10 to 15 million dollars in bilateral trade will have uh, taken place. Mexico is now the third largest trade partner of the U.S. and second largest export destination. And in fact, the U.S. exports more to Mexico than to Japan and China combined, than to the BRIC countries combined. And I had to get this new statistic. Uh, soccer fans here know that the World Cup is on its way. And you might also know that in the history of the event, eight different countries have won the World Cup, or maybe nine if Mexico wins it uh, this year. And you might be surprised to hear that Mexico also buys more goods from the U.S. than do all the eight countries that have won the FIFA World Cup combined. And I'll leave it to you to figure out which countries uh, these are. Now, while the goal of NAFTA was the establishment of a free trade area, something much more significant has happened. North America has become a region of shared production. We are jointly producing goods through the deeply integrated production and supply chains that have developed as a result of the clear, stable, and transparent rules established by NAFTA. And we are increasingly engaging in the global economy as a single region. The paradigmatic example of North American integrated production is the auto industry. But the aerospace industry has become increasingly salient. To give you just but one example, Bombardier, the Canadian aerospace company, is uh, producing uh, parts of the Learjet 85 in Querétaro, producing the fuselage. That jet uses Pratt & Whitney engines produced in Canada, and final assembly takes place in Wichita. Kansas. And as I said, this is just a single example of what is already taking place in North America. This is due not only to the trade that has taken place, but to the intra-regional investment. It might not surprise you to learn that the U.S. is the main foreign investor in Mexico, and uh, it, it invested about $168 billion from 1999 to 2013 in Mexico, which is just about half of total foreign direct investment in Mexico. But you might also be interested to learn that Mexican investment in the U.S. is also growing significantly. Uh, there are different estimates, but uh, on one count is that there, were, there was about $20 billion worth of Mexican investment in the U.S. from 1999 to 2013. And 40 out of the 50 states of the U.S. have at least one world-class Mexican-based company, such as Cemex, Gruma, Grupo Alfa, Grupo Mexico, Lala, Bimbo, and Mexichem there. So... You know, this is not only the U.S. investing in Mexico, this is Mexico investing in the U.S. This growing intra-regional investment can be seen in the percentage of U.S. value added in U.S. imports. It is 2% from Japan and from the European Union. It is 3% for imports from Brazil and 4% for Chinese imports. It is 25% for imports from Canada and 40% for imports from Mexico. That is to say... U.S. imports from Mexico have 10 times more value added than U.S. imports from China. Now, the success of NAFTA was largely the result of the rules of the agreement, but particularly the trade and investment decisions made by business leaders during these past two decades. 
But if we are to take North American integration and competitiveness to the next level, we need to have a much stronger and proactive engagement between the public and private sector and to truly think and act regionally. The world economy has changed radically in these last two decades. Services loom much larger now, as they did 20 years ago, as does e-commerce. We have advanced manufacturing, including 3D printing, which means that we need a very highly skilled workforce, streamlined regulations, and vastly improved infrastructure and logistics, not only at border crossings, but throughout North America. And by the way, I believe... Uh, there was an excellent program at UCSD-TV last April hosted by uh, Dean Cowie about uh, advanced manufacturing in the U.S., perhaps a new program on advanced manufacturing in North America could be done. The energy landscape, yeah, all right, great. You see, we're already doing things. The energy landscape has also changed dramatically. During the NAFTA negotiations, Mexico did not open its hydrocarbon sector to foreign investment, but with last December's constitutional reform, Mexico's horizons are to change radically and for the better. Meanwhile, according to the International Energy Agency, the U.S. is slated to overtake Saudi Arabia and Russia as the world's top oil producer in 2015, and in its energy outlook to 2040, ExxonMobil estimated that by 2020, North America would become a net natural gas exporter and a net export of oil around 2030. North America thus has all the necessary energy resources to fuel its economic growth for a long time, and reliable and affordable energy will be a key component in ensuring a very competitive North American manufacturing base. So, we need what needs to be done and are already making strides. Last September, Vice President Joe Biden was in Mexico, and he formally launched the High-Level Economic Dialogue, the so-called HLED. Under the HLED, uh, the Mexican and U.S. governments, in close coordination with stakeholders, will uh, foster a series of initiatives aimed at reducing transaction costs to businesses in the region. We are launching initiatives in areas such as transportation, telecoms, strategic logistics corridors. I believe logistics will become increasingly important for the competitiveness of the North American region. And in addition to the HLED, last May, President Peña Nieto and Obama agreed to create the Bilateral Forum on Higher Education, Innovation and Research, which we call FOBESI for its Spanish acronym. The FOBESI will develop a shared vision for educational cooperation with a view to expanding economic opportunities in both countries and developing workforce attuned to the needs of the 21st century economy. In close collaboration with academia, business, and stakeholders, FOBESI will develop initiatives on, among other issues, workforce development, student and academic mobility, research, technological development, and innovation partnerships, and language instruction. The Mexican FOBESI advisory group has already presented what we call the Proyecta 100,000, Proyecta 100,000, which aims to send 100,000 Mexican higher education students to the U.S. by 2018 and is part of the proposed 100 plus 50 strategy, which aims to send 50,000 U.S. students to study in Mexico also by 2018. These are doubtless very, very ambitious goals, but I think we have to be very ambitious. And I think this is particularly relevant given that Mexico comes in at ninth place in the number of higher education students in the U.S. I think we can and we should and we will do much better. 
Let me now turn briefly to the Toluca summit, which provided a new impetus to trinational engagement by highlighting some of the commitments that have a bearing on North American co competitiveness. I'll just list some of them so that you get a sense of the initiatives that we are pursuing in terms of North American competitiveness. Maybe some of these, this information, uh, even though it's publicly available, does not register. I think it's, it's very, very important just to get a sense of what we are doing. We will develop a North American competitiveness work plan focused on investment and innovation. We will jointly promote and support to underscore jointly promote trade and investment in sectors where our integrated production chains give us a comparative advantage. I gave the example of the auto sector and the aerospace sector. We will conduct a mapping of industrial clusters to promote development, innovation and investment. I'm sure there's a huge potential between San Diego and Tijuana. We will establish a North American transportation plan. We will build on existing bilateral border mechanisms to expedite the safe movement of goods across North America and promote trilateral exchanges and logistics corridors. We will strengthen regulatory cooperation in order to reduce transaction costs for businesses. Right now, we focus more on two bilateral regulatory initiatives. We will try to see where there are complementarities to take a trilateral as opposed to bilateral approach. We will establish a North American Trusted Traveler Program, which will allow vetted travelers to more easily cross borders between the three countries. And turning more to educational issues, we will establish a trilateral council for research, development, and innovation, and promote joint research in national laboratories and universities, strengthening links with companies across North America. And finally, we will hold a meeting of energy ministers of North America to explore common strategies on energy efficiency, infrastructure, innovation, renewable energy, non-conventional energy sources, energy trade, and responsible development of energy resources. So, as you can see, and to paraphrase uh, Shakespeare, if I may, uh, the Toluca summit was much ado about North American competitiveness. <laughs> These commitments are building on the foundation that we laid some 20 years ago and are an acknowledgement that our economies are not in a zero-sum game with each other, but rather are competing together as one unit in the global marketplace. And while North America is one of the most competitive and dynamic regions in the world, there's still huge untapped potential. Looking towards the future, PricewaterhouseCoopers has estimated that in 2050, the five largest economies in the world will be China, the US, India, Brazil, and Japan. Mexico will be the seventh largest economy in 2050 after Russia. The US and Canada will be the top two countries in the world in 2050 in terms of GDP per capita, while Mexico will be the top Latin American country in that regard. But the future is not a foregone conclusion. The future is what we make of it. And here I want to mention my uh, dear friend, the late Bob Pastor, founder of the Center for North American Studies at the American University. I had a, a long discussion with him some time ago. A lot of people had discussions with uh, dear Bob. And um, he said that one should not pursue aims because they are feasible, but they are desirable. And in forging the future of North America, we are making feasible what is 
desirable. And I believe that we must remain as forceful and as ambitious as were those who spearheaded NAFTA negotiations more than 20 years ago. Thank you. Mexico looking back, NAFTA at 20. The session will look at all the changes in the last two decades in Mexico that have been brought about because of NAFTA. The session is being moderated by UCSD political science professor Peter Smith. This first session features the policymakers who initially put NAFTA to work and business leaders who have seen their industries change and grow under NAFTA. The trade agreement officially began on January 1st, 1994. The moderator, to tell you about him, Peter Smith is a professor at UC San Diego. Smith specializes in comparative politics, Latin American politics, and U.S.-Latin American relations. He served as director of UC San Diego's Center for Iberian and Latin American Studies and director of Latin American Studies. Our panelists... Juan Gallardo is the chairman of the Board of Organization Cultiva. Gallardo has held leadership positions in major companies in Mexico and was chosen to be the lead coordinator of an alliance of Mexican private sector organizations formed in 1990 to promote expanded trade with Mexico, particularly in the context of NAFTA. Carlos Elizondo is a professor at El Centro de Investigación y Docencia Económicas, Elizondo began as a professor and researcher at CIDE before becoming director in 1995. In 2004, he served as ambassador and permanent representative of Mexico to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development before returning to CIDE in 2006. Kenneth Schwendel is a member of the board of directors of Grupo Vis, Mexico's largest cattle and beef company. He previously served as executive director of Rabobank's food and agribusiness research in Mexico. Before joining Rabobank, he held leadership positions at the Banco Nacional de Mexico and the American Soybean Association for Mexico, Central American, and Caribbean Basin. Each speaker will have approximately 15 minutes to present, and then Peter will begin to moderate the discussion, and then we'll go to the question and answer. So we'll begin with one. The idea was that I would be starting, if you don't mind. Yes, oh, that's fine. Thank you. Well, first of all, thanks a lot. I'll have a presentation. Thanks a lot for this opportunity to be here. After Antonio's great speech, it makes things much better because I'm just going to focus from the Mexican perspective because the seminar is maybe Mexico moving forward. So I'll try to answer some of the very sharp questions that Peter Smith sent us very diligently with enough time to to, to try to think about them. And the main question I want to ask, and Antonio already quoted, what was the main objective of NAFTA? The main objective of NAFTA was creating growth. That NAFTA did. But what did NAFTA did not do? It did not create growth as expected. It wasn't necessarily what people thought would create, we created as a result of NAFTA. There's been this very interesting discussion in the last month between some of the guys that had participated in the discussion of NAFTA, Serra and Herminio Blanco, Jaime Sabludowsky, among others. And Jaime Serra says that he never promised growth would, would, would be as high as expected. But what is true, most people believe that growth would be much higher. So this is a topic, what NAFTA did and did not. So let me start with very brief data. These are oil exports of Mexico. So 
the trend is more or less the same prior to NAFTA. The big change is not that we're exporting more oil. In fact, we're exporting less. The big, big change is that the price of oil is much higher than before. But these are non-oil exports. So that gives you a very clear idea of how swiftly NAFTA changed the dynamics. But bear in mind, as you, you can see in the year 2000, that our exports stopped growing, stopped growing in the year 2000. I'll explain why, and I'll go back to that anomaly in a moment. When you look only at manufacturing exports, uh, and you exclude all non-manufacturing, where would, would, would include oil and mining and agricultural products, you still see a very, very sharp rise. Uh, if you look at uh, the trade balance, however, since from the U.S. perspective, it has created a large sucking sound, to remind Ant Antonio Ortiz-Mena. Uh, the sucking sound was not what Mexican critics of NAFTA were expecting. Mexican thought that we would have had an extremely severe deficit with the U.S., but what happened was extremely the contrary. Mexico has sustained a very large superavit, since from the U.S. perspective, a very large deficit, which is almost a mirror of what happened between Mexico and China. This is the trade deficit of Mexico vis-à-vis -vis China. It's, it's, it's very acute growth. Right now, our deficit is around $60 billion, and our superavit with the United States is around uh, $60 as well. So the trends are not identical, but the magnitudes today are exactly the same. So what basically did, NAFTA did, it created a, a, an integrated... Uh, economy between uh, China and, and Mexico, between the United States and Mexico, and Canada, of course, but it needed a lot of input from China. Inputs that, if it weren't from Mexico, might have been processed directly in China and sent and increased the trade balance between China and Mexico. It's very briefly, because I have a very small time, but it's worth in mind having the perspective of what happened to other Latin American countries. This is the export growth of Brazil and Mexico, and this is if we look only at manufacturing exports. Mexico is in red, Brazil is in green. So what you can see is that Mexico was transformed in terms of its export capacity of manufacturing goods, and compared to Brazil, I think that it's quite uh, revealing by itself. Now, one of the questions that Peter asked us is, what was the impact on, 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 on the countryside? And in terms of our total exports of agriculture and farming, and we have an expert here, so I won't deal much into this topic, there's been a significant growth. And even if you, if you look at the production of one product, which is corn, the production of corn did not collapse as many people thought it would happen. In fact, it depends on how much rain we had a year, but it's been more or less stable with some trend of, of growing, with some years reaching almost 24,000 tons. So it does show you that this idea that NAFTA would destroy the corn production in Mexico really did not take place. Uh, if we look at it from the U.S. perspective, certainly NAFTA has made uh, Mexico its third or second most important partner. If we look at the total imports of the U.S. from different countries, this is Canada, They've been decreasing. This is China, an amazing growth. This is uh, Germany, that's Brazil, and this is Mexico. So Mexico has been gaining market share if you look at total imports of the U.S. But if we look only at manufacturing imports, all those manufacturers that, 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 that the U.S. buys from abroad, this is Canada, 
this is China, this is Japan, these are recent industrialized countries, and this is Mexico. Mexico, in terms of manufacturing imports, and this data is only till the year 2012, I couldn't find them until the year 2013. Mexico is the second largest partner of, of the United States in terms of manufacturing imports, since from the uh, United States perspective. But what did NAFTA certainly did not do? It did not lead to a significant uh, growth in Mexico. If we, if we look at the growth of the three uh, NAFTA par uh, partners, this is the U.S., yearly uh, GDP growth of the U.S., of Mexico, and of Canada. It did create an amazing synchronization about, uh, between the three of them. But for a country which is much poorer, which is the case of Mexico, this is a tragedy. Because what economic theory would predict is that if two countries start trading, the country that has the lowest GDP per capita should tend to converge into the level of development of the two largest countries. That's what happened in, in the European Union with Spain, uh, and that's what's, happening, that's what's happening right now between China and the rest of the world. It certainly did not happen <coughs> in the case of Mexico, and so there are some questions to be asked. This was just the background, now I'll try to answer why. No more slides, so we <laughs> can now forget numbers. Why? Of course, this would merit a very uh, complex discussion, but I'll throw some hypotheses of why growth did not come as expected. The first one has to do with a word that barely did not appear during the negotiation of NAFTA. Antonio, I don't know if you are still here, but I don't recall anyone, and I've reread some of the documents, no one considering the word China during the negotiations of NAFTA. China has been a very recent, in terms of these 20 years, a very recent entrance into the world market. And the whole idea is that Mexico was the cheaper guy in, the, in, 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 in this part of the world, and suddenly the world became much larger. And that's why, if you recall, in the year 2000, uh, Mexico's exports stopped growing. Why? An easy, pleased answer would be because Fox arrived to power but it's wrong. The real reason is that China entered the World Trade Organization. And then our relative advantage of being inside of NAFTA, well, still, it's still much better NAFTA than being in the World Trade Organization, but the difference of salaries and other, and other prices between Mexico and China is such that we did, so, did, we did, so, did, did see a sucking sound going to China. And so the whole idea of, of NAFTA was based on the idea that Mexico could, ca could, could capture a lot of the U.S. investment that needed to relocalize because of higher wages in, in, in the U.S., etc., and it went to China. Secondly, our, our both for economic policy reasons and because of some structural changes, we ended with a very expensive peso. What were those reasons that were beyond what people uh, thought when negotiating NAFTA. First, the oil price increased dramatically. When we were negotiating NAFTA, the price of oil was $10, $15, something like that. And by the year 2000, it had reached $100. And so the, the influx of, 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 peso, of dollars into the Mexican economy created an overvalued exchange rate compared to the very careful management in China of their exchange rate. And secondly, of course, uh, remittances by migrants. No one really thought 
that when we negotiated NAFTA, remittances were around 4 billion US, and by the early year 2000, it was nearly 20. And there was also, I think, a mistake. We had a very restricted monetary policy, but that's something else. So that would be like the structural reasons uh, beyond our control. But of course, and I have a book where I discuss this with some detail, which is called Por eso estamos como estamos, which I forgot it's in my hotel. I would have showed it to you. Uh, but, uh, and my wife didn't, saw my, didn't see my message, so she didn't bring it either. So, uh, but it's my fault, of course, not hers. Uh, I have to underscore that. Uh, in this book, I try to argue why. And the reason is basically that we thought that with NAFTA, we had done our homework. And of course, we, had, we have extremely uh, inefficient economic institutions, not only in terms of its basic uh, functionality, in terms of rule of law, property, etc., etc., but of course, all this uh, economic, political economy that has allowed certain individuals to extract very significant rents from the consumers and from the taxpayers. Denise uh, yesterday addressed some of these issues. Uh, I would basically argue that uh, if you look at what was open, which is a manufacturing sector, there was a lot of growth taking place and a lot of productivity gains taking place. If you look at the rest of the economy where the, our economy remained extremely protected and with some very powerful groups capable of extracting rents. Uh, the situation was very different. You know well the story, telecommunications, one player, a significant player in telecommunications, two in television, but you could go throughout the whole economy and even in sectors which you usually find a lot of competition, like in bread, manufacturing of bread, we have one player. I was discussing yesterday with Juan the difference between the largest player, which is Coca-Cola, FEMSA, and the rest is amazing. 70% of the market on the hands of the largest one, and 15 in the second one, which is uh, uh, Juan's group. So if you look at almost any sector, that's what you would see. And on top of that, you have an extremely inefficient bureaucratic sector, because there you have your ex rent extractors, which are the bureaucracy in general, and in particular trade unions. If you look at Pemex, the debt that Mexican society has in favor of debt workers, of, of Pemex workers, because of, because of the pensions they, they've been gaining, which are absolutely ridiculous in terms of at what age they can get their pension, at what level of, of wage compared to the rest of the economy. It's around, it's almost... 10% of GDP by now, uh, and if you look at IMSS, ISTE, and in most uh, large public sector organizations, you have that same problem, and at the same time, an extremely inefficient uh, public sector in general. We've been investing billions of dollars in Chicontepec to extract oil, and the oil just doesn't arrive because they've been doing a very poor job. We have bottlenecks created by this lack of capacity of the public sector and because of how this public sector relates to the private sector, like we have a major bottleneck in gas imports. We have gas in, in, our, in our own, we have shale gas and normal gas that will be enough to produce what we need in Mexico and to export even more, but we still have to import it from the United States because we have rules that have impeded investment in the sector. Uh, not only that, we're, we're, we weren't even capable of, of, of creating large enough pipes 
to import at least from the U.S. and profit from the relatively good price in the U.S., and we have to import a percentage of that from Nigeria by boat. So we have extremely inefficient reforms. And let me say a few words about is Peña going to save Mexico, which was this Time magazine. Uh, Denise Dress yesterday was extremely negative. I am much more positive. Uh, there's still a lot, a lot to be seen of how these reforms are, are actually uh, implemented. But the general model is by no means, by no, I have no doubts, is the correct one, which is strengthening the capacity of uh, the state to confront both private monopolists and public sector monopolists. It's not enough, of course, no, never things are enough. It's still yet to be seen how this works. But let's start, for example, with telecommunications. No doubt, you can just follow the share of American Mobile. <laughs> Investors already have anticipated that they're going to pay a, a big price as a result of, of these new reforms. Telecommunication sectors, we will be having a very strong uh, constitutionally autonomous institution in charge of implementing what is an extremely strict a law, well, constitutional reform so far, but I'm pretty sure that the law will be relatively similar in terms of enforcing competition in the sector. Maybe it's so harsh that we'll be seeing a problem in terms of not enough investment because neither the largest nor the second one might be interested in investing with such uh, strong rules. In competition, what is currently being discussed in the Congress is extremely harsh. If I were to be a monopolist, I would be very afraid. I have eight seconds. In terms of energy, no, it's already counting in the other direction, sorry. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of energy, the reform is quite significant, and it does include, contrary to what happened 20 years ago, it does include important uh, new institutions for regulating the market, and I could go on with much more detail, but time, of course, has already betrayed me. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Which one of you would like to go next? Well, thank you very much. I, uh, first of all, I think you'll all agree with me how very difficult it is to add after Antonio's excellent presentation and Carlos. Uh, to the diagnostic of, of, of NAFTA itself. I think it's absolutely extraordinary that the Center for U.S.-Mexico Studies was initiated at this university. I think recognizing Manuel uh, and, and Carlos as the, the not-so-hidden drivers of this effort, I think, is uh, only fair. And I hope that this very timely initiative really be able to percolate in what is undoubtedly the best timing for discussion on these issues right now. It's just simply for all the reasons that we've already seen. My comments today are basically related to a private sector perspective of what happened, number one, what really occurred, what was the transformation, number two, number three, what are we missing today, and where are we going from here? That's basically from a private sector standpoint, and trying to find those items particularly that are relevant today. If you look at the, uh, at the history of the construction of NAFTA, the private sector role in all three countries was enormously important. I don't think there ever had been or ever has been since as close a collaboration between the three private sectors as occurred during that period. 
And that collaboration was enormously constructive in terms of bringing forth very innovative solutions, bridging differences, acting as an advisors for all three uh, negotiating teams, and truly becoming a sort of entity in itself that helped enormously uh, construct what NAFTA became. That today is more uh, urgent than ever. Uh, this initiative that took place, as mentioned by Antonio, Vice President Biden's visit, where a three-way uh, three dialogue is now initiating between the different private sectors and that hopefully will construct the, the future of these shopping lists that Antonio mentioned, which was, is very ambitious but very realizable. The fact of the matter is that the role of the private sector has two prongs. It has the prong of being the advisor, and, and advisor in real terms, and it has a prong which is just as important of the internal soul-searching of where the opportunities are for each one of these different sectors and, and, and activities. And th both those prongs occurred, and occurred very importantly. The second thing that happened also, which I think was very important, is the whole question of innovation. I'll pick on just one subject, but uh, uh, there, there had already been established between the Canada uh, Canada, uh, between the U.S. and Chile, uh, previous uh, trade agreement, and between the Chile and uh, between the Canadian and the U.S. trade agreement, a dispute settlement system was already in place. If you take the picture of that dispute settlement system and you see the picture of what finalized the NAFTA at the time, in terms of the creativity of making sure that there was a balanced mechanism, it is truly amazing, and that was done enormously through the efforts of the different legal minds that participated in that and with the willingness of really trying to find a true dispute settlement system. Now, if you take that dispute settlement today and you compare it to the dispute settlement that is in place for the Alliance of the Pacific, you'll see just how much progress has been made over the years in terms of really achieving these goals. Sometimes Sometimes we tend to look at what's missing and forget a little bit what was already done. And in that sense, I think what was achieved during NAFTA as a principle has been and is continuing to be strongly, strongly improved upon. And it's happening, and you'll hear more about that today in the, in the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, and you'll hear about it in the Alliance of the Pacific. So this NAFTA was never thought of as something static, it was thought of as something of a work in progress. And in a way, the evolution of the world trade system has helped that progress occur. Now, speaking of the transformation, and I'll pick on four specific uh, examples because they just, uh, they, they highlight so much of what really happened. The first one is within Mexico, what you can all really call a sort of a silent revolution. A silent, very deep revolution. We went from being a country where things were assembled to a country where things are being manufactured. And that's said very simply, but the value added that that generated for the kind of jobs that that generated, even though diluted among the total population when you look at the big figures, does not take away from the fact that value-added jobs mounted on the capability of Mexican workers and their capacity to understand, learn, and follow, the, follow a pattern is nothing short of amazing. 
When you look at the Bombardier example that Antonio mentioned a little while ago, there is nothing short of 60% integration of manufactured products in the aerospace products that they're exporting and then finalizing assembly with in Europe. Same thing applies to auto parts. The same thing applies all across the board. You need not go very far from here. I mean, here in San Diego, you have a very large company called Solar, which has, is halfway between Tijuana and, and, and San Diego, and where the complementarity of both production capabilities is simply enormous. So it does exist, it does work, and it, it, did, it did happen, this transformation. The second is the, precisely the concept of production sharing complementarity. I mean, you'll do one part here, another part in Mexico, another part in Canada. You bring it all together and you finally assemble it wherever it makes sense because it's all about North American competitiveness vis-a-vis the rest of the world. And it's amazing how these pieces have fallen into place. I've had the privilege of being on the Caterpillar board for several years now. And the way you manufacture these, this very heavy equipment and where it occurs in terms of what markets it's going to serve has been shifting according precisely to this complementarity. General Electric has the same. Honeywell has the same. The list goes on and on and on and on. And the fact of the matter is together we make more sense in terms of competitiveness than in isolated parts. And that is occurring today. The third, which is very important, a little painful, of course, but true, those who did their homework uh, came out ahead. Those who procrastinated did not. It's part of the history of life in business. But, for example, in in different industries, the whole consolidation process was enormously accelerated. It was driven by the fact that size does matter, volume does matter. Technologies do change, and either you are up to snuff and into the transformation, or you're left behind. And uh, a perfect example of that is the auto parts industry in Mexico. 20 years ago, there was 30 or 40 players. Today, there's four or five that represent 90% of the volume. Why? Precisely because size, technology, uh, innovation, all of these elements that are uh, long-term commitment, capability to service, etc., 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 are the drivers, whereas before you were basically uh, dependent mostly on the secondary market than on the primary. And the primary today is very important. Mexico this year, if I'm not mistaken, and Carlos, correct me if I'm not mistaken, will become the fourth largest auto producer in the world. Fourth largest. Or fifth. It's a little bit lower. But well, but it's in there. I mean, fourth it's, uh, exporter. <laughs> or exporter, exporter, I'm sorry. Well, my numbers are never really quite clear, but I mean, it, the, fi- the, the, the bottom line is that the transformation has been massive. And it's been massive not only with U.S. manufacturing, it's been massive with European manufacturing, it's been massive with Japanese and Korean manufacturing, using this springboard effect and access to markets. I mean, the new Aguascalientes plant of Mazda is nothing short of impressive by any standard worldwide. And what's even more impressive is not the fact that a new car comes out for the world every, I think, 35 seconds or so, Again, my numbers are probably not right, but they are fast. eh? (laughs) But the bottom line is basically that that car comes with 70% content manufactured in Mexico. 
That's what is the big difference in the process. And it's not just all the pieces being brought from all over the world. That's the biggest transformation. And that consolidation process meant that if you see the map of Mexican uh, business leadership, the map over 20 years has significantly transformed. And will continue to do so because this is an ongoing process. Finally, the whole concept of the rule of origin. This sort of esoteric subject that, you know, what percentage has to be done where is really basically uh, the driver behind the whole transformation. The work that was done by the Mexican and U.S. and Canadian private sector, just for example in the automotive or in the textile, in terms of the establishment of the rule of origin, that establishment of where they drew that line and how they accounted for it, was exactly what drove that whole integration and that whole transformation. So it is a motor. What are we missing? Well, first of all, let me call it more teeth. The dispute settlement system, uh, and this happens to anybody who reads a, a contract that he signed 20 years ago he, and lived with, he's going to find things that he can improve, I mean, by definition. And I think we should capture the experience of those 20 years to improve the contract. You're not renegotiating it. You're simply making it more efficient. Uh, you're trying to solve the bottlenecks wherever they surfaced or didn't surface and so on. And for example, what I mean by more teeth is in the dispute settlement system, there's a number of gaps in terms of how it's applied that need to make it more intense, more, more real, more of a solution maker. And that's happening in some, of the other, in some of the other agreements. The other thing we need to do is a simplification process. Obviously, when we cooked up these rules of origin, there was a number, uh, quite a bit of skepticism around the table as to who was going to comply and not, and how do we survey it, and how do we make sure that it's real, and are we not, you know, are we not being springboards for others, and so on and so forth. A natural concern. And the paperwork that goes into compliance of, of, of rules of origin is absolutely massive. Twenty years later, I am certain there is no doubt we can simplify that process and bring important savings and fluidity to the whole integration process, given the trust that's been developed over that period. And that takes me to the third one, which is this whole concept of infrastructure. I don't think there's a bigger driver today in terms of North American competitiveness than improving the border, making our borders efficient. Making a, this does not mean non-compliance. This does not mean getting slack. It means making them efficient, make, using all the newer technologies that exist, all of the different mechanisms of control that exist today to be able to make this whole movement of people and goods that much more fluid, that much more efficient. It's very simple. Nothing, nothing beats geography. And our geography has brought us together, and it's given us this enormous opportunity. We should be able to do the pre-clearance of the truck that's leaving from Ottawa or wherever, all the way down to finishing its, its, its work in, uh, somewhere in Guadalajara or wherever, with a whole system that controls the process and so on, but that does not mean that you have to change and transform and uh, change carriers and uh, check again and what have you. All that is time, money, etc. So the whole process of simplifying what is trying to be done, I think, can be very, uh, very, should be achieved and can be achieved. And the whole concept of infrastructure 
Arturo, who's here, who was our a brilliant ambassador that we had in, in, in the last period, it, well, said it many, many times. And I mean, the fact of the matter is that we have a we we built we built into NAFTA something we called the NAFTA uh, the NAD Bank. Well, the NAD Bank. Really, I think we'd be hard put to find what it actually did over the last 20 years. I mean, it exists, it was funded, it should have been a springboard for activity and transformation, it hasn't been. Why not recapture and rekindle the idea we had then and use it in a much more efficient fashion? So those are the things that need to be done for. And when you look forward, as you look forward, it really basically, uh, the concept is, it's all about the neighborhood. Uh, the fact of the matter is that North American competitiveness today, given the energy transformation, given the people transformation, given all of the resources we've talked about, given the complementarity, given a NAFTA plus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, North America should see itself as an entity that is capable of competing in the rest of the world and being, of course, a very significant part of that rest of the world. There's very important lessons to be learned from the Alliance for the Pacific. I think it really is something you'll enjoy hearing this afternoon. Trans-Pacific Partnership is a great initiative. I think it has all of the inner workings of bringing the rest of the world into these disciplines. It's no longer about tariffs. It's about certainty. It's about complementarity. And that's where I think that we can play a very important role. But it's us Canada, U.S., and Mexico together. And that's where I think the three governments are obviously doing that. The summit of a week ago, the shopping list that you saw a minute ago, which I think is right on and whose elements that we will all be pursuing, and the role of the three private sectors within that. Thank you very much. I just start off right at Thank you. Um, what They've been asked to do is essentially provide a case study, an example of an industry, of a company that's been able to grow and progress during the NAFTA years. I think it's specifically especially interesting talking about the beef cattle sector. Why? Because one of the things 20 years ago, when you're talking about NAFTA, we tried to identify which would be the losers and which would be the winners. And uh, cattle was considered to be a loser as far as Mexico is concerned. And what I'll argue today is that uh, far from being a loser, we're probably a winner. The other thing, too, that I'll try to make a point is that uh, I've heard in, in the uh, introduction and even in some of the talks here, everybody's talking about technology, 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 and we don't really think of the agriculture sector as a technological sector, but there's a lot of technology that goes into it. And I think one of the other things in terms of innovations, it's innovations not only in technology, but innovations in terms of changing your business model. I think that would be the key point that I want to argue about today is that uh, looking at the company, we've changed our business model over time to make us a much more competitive uh, company in the uh, North American context. As you can see, I brought some slides. I decided to leave them in Spanish so to see if everybody really understands it here or it's just uh, what I uh, was told and it may, it may or may not be true. I want, what I wanted to do then is talk a little bit about our experiences, uh, what happened, uh, what lessons we learned, and then some thoughts for the future. If we go back about 20 years ago, 
when uh, we were negotiating the NAFTA, the livestock sector, uh, cattle, was already an open sector. Uh, Luis Tejas, I don't think he's going to be here this afternoon, but Luis really got his start uh, imp- uh, being in charge of the importing and bringing in cattle on into Mexico when he worked with uh, Pedro Aspe. Why were we doing it? It was essentially to lower inflation. Policy has tend to be one of looking at uh, the consumers in that time and not uh, producers. You can see down way at the bottom, you see the graph down there, you can see how from 1988 to about 1993, 94, imports of meat really, really grew. So this is, what we, this is what we're facing. We're facing a sector that was open. We were very scared about what was happening. And what was our first uh, response? Our first response was to initiate a dumping demand. We did this in 1998. We said that the U.S. was dumping uh, old meat. They were selling below cost, ex- uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, just a, a little antidote on that. If you're ever in one of these public audiences and it's 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, you're bored stiff, what you might want to do is count the number of lawyers in there, uh, figure out what they're, uh, you know, how much they're making for not by hours, multiply that and then divide it by the number of seconds, and uh, you're talking about how many cars were coming out. Imagine what the cost of per second of a lawyer is in the dumping demand, uh, <laughs> just in case you're in, in that type of thing. Well, so we, 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 we initiated that dumping demand. And um, the uh, Secretary of Commerce said that we won, but in, in reality, we really didn't win anything. In fact, we felt that it, um, it really distorted the, the sector. So what was, the, um, what was our answer? What did we had to do? We had to rethink, rethink the business model. We had to redefine ourselves in the livestock sector. We ceased to be uh, producers of cattle, producers of pigs, producers of uh, chicken. We decided that we were producers of meat. And that's a very, very important uh, 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 change because it redefines the business model, redefines our objective. If you look at that graph down there, you can see what our cost and Sucarne, the, uh, uh, our company costs are in terms of, um, of, of uh, per, per head of cattle compared to what, our, what the costs are in the U.S. for packaging, slaughter and packaging. You can see that when we talk about uh, meat, we defined and redefined our thought of what the business model is, what our objective is, we're highly competitive. So I think that's an important thing. The other thing, too, is that as we change our business model, we understand that we have to worry about uh, consumers, we have to worry about food safety. And if you look at uh, on the right-hand side you, side, you can see all the certificates that we have, and it's not just the USDA, it's the Russians, it's the Japanese, it's the South Koreans. So it's, uh, we've redefined our business model. We've defined, as I'm uh, saying, we defined our business model as not just uh, cattle raisers, but meat producers, and then looking at what the, the market's demanding. I think that this, again, is, is a very, very important point. So what, uh, what happened then, if you look at this, uh, again, the, the graphs here, um, we've turned what was a deficit in 1994 into uh, positive um, ba- in terms of balance of payment for, for cattle. So I think the thing, look at the, the, the graph on the left-hand side. And if you can really see it, if you look at the, um, uh, the, the, the sort of the light blue uh, uh, part on the graph, the exports, those are uh, feeder cattle, the live uh, cattle that uh, we feed and then uh, slaughter. If you look at the number of feeder cattle that we export, that's pretty much stayed the same. But if you look at the uh, dark blue, that's meat that we're exporting. You see that what the change in the model is that we turned from a, in, from a country that exported uh, feeder cattle and imported meat to a country that s- continues to export feeder cattle. 
but it's a country that's also exporting meat. We defined, redefined uh, the model. And you can see on the, the graph on the right-hand side, it, uh, it, looks, it looks all, all together. So what does this all mean? We, we, we feel that um, th at this point of time, there's, there's a change in the dynamics of, of, of the world economy. We think that the uh, livestock sector, which 20 years ago was considered to be a loser, not only is it not a loser, but we think that it's one, a sector that can really turn around and be a leading sector in, uh, in pushing and developing the Mexican economy. I'm sorry for all the, the, all the people in the automobile industry, the tech industry. We feel that the livestock industry can be one of the leaders in, in the economy. We see the demand in terms of meat around the world is, is important, is growing. But more important, what's Mexico? We have, uh, we're, we're uh, hoof and mouth free, we don't have uh, mad cow disease in the country. We have a very strong uh, Secretary of Agriculture in terms of the phytosanitary uh, aspects. I think it's probably just as good as anyone anywhere in the world. We've got a number of policies that are pushing uh, developing the sector. So we see that it can be a, a leading sector, and we're talking about moving into what we call uh, a, a multi-sector model that will uh, push and develop Mexican, Mexican agriculture. In terms of uh, Sucarne, uh, the company of which I'm a board member and a, and a small shareholder, and just a little bit about us, again, I think that we've been one of the leaders in terms of um, redefining the business model. In terms of uh, our, over the 20 years of NAFTA, our sales have grown uh, 44 times. We're only twice, Carlos. We're only twice as big as the leading component. We, we, we're, we're working on it. You know, we want to be the Carlos Slim of uh, of the meat industry. But, you know, give give give, give us time. Uh, but we've grown 44 times in terms of our sales. But I think the, the key thing is what what what's been dri driving the growth, the ability to change. If you look at the the graph on the uh, on the right hand side, we started out uh, 20 some years ago, and we were uh, producing and uh, uh, raising cattle, slaughtering it, and selling carcasses. We changed. We changed from carcasses to bof box beef. That was an important, uh, important change. And that meant that from, uh, it, it really gave uh, significant uh, impetus to the growth of the company, and it changed the business model in Mexico. If you, look at, if you go to Mexico today, you hardly see anybody selling uh, carcasses, or half carcasses, you see selling box beef. Now, if you look at that graph very closely, you see towards the, uh, very, the far right-hand side, you see that now we're looking at uh, more giving further process into the, uh, into the animal, into the meat. So we're moving then from, uh, we went from carcasses to box beef to further processing, more value-added, more consumer-oriented uh, meat development. So that's what, again, the, I think the key technological change here is really the business model. Business model. We're, we're, we, we do do a lot of, we, you know, we're, we're as efficient as anybody else. We've, we invest a lot. We're investing right now in uh, the area of Torreon, which should be, what we consider will be the largest and most efficient uh, plant in North America. Uh, we're already the fifth largest uh, uh, cattle feeder in the world, not just North America, in the world. But, this, but it's based on the business model. And how have we changed our business model? number of things. We look at the, the, uh, the animal, we look at it as not one solid animal, we look at it as the composition of a number of cuts and pieces of meat. And what we end up doing, maybe it's my, ba my banking background, I say we're arbitraging the meat. Uh, we're exporting uh, high-value cuts and importing low-value cuts. On the world market, Sucarne is the leading import of uh, lips, for example. 
because there's a demand for that in the Mexican market. So this is what we've done. We, we've re redefined the business model, but we've gone even further. We're now the, in Sucarne, we're now the uh, leading uh, importer of meat. We're the leading exporter of uh, meat. We're exporting to the U.S., of course. We're exporting to Japan, to uh, Russia, to Africa, uh, among other, other countries. So again, the vision of what the, the model is. And we're also then uh, very much involved in terms of uh, pork and uh, poultry. So we feel that then, you know, there are a number of uh, successful cases in the, Mexican, in the Mexican economy. We feel there's much more that can be done, much more that uh, can be developed. We've, one of the things we see right now is really the development of the greenhouse, of the horticulture industry, and the development uh, through, through, um, through greenhouses, which has been very, very important. So what does this all mean? We, see, we think that um, in, in, in agriculture, especially in livestock, we've moved from 20 years ago, we were scared and worried producers. We moved from being a scared and worried producer to a successful competitor. But, and this is where I probably disagree with uh, some, of, uh, some of my panelists and some of the people, um, Dr. Ortiz Mena, in the morning, we see that a lot of the synergies that are available that NAFTA offers to us, we really haven't uh, taken advantage of as we should and we can and we can in terms of agriculture. So we see that this is, you know, moving forward, this is where we've got to look at what are the synergies that are available. And this becomes more and more important in, in the context of the change in the structure of uh, the world trade, uh, especially in agricultural products. So what's, what's our thinking? We feel that one of the things we've got to look at now is somewhat of a trilateral uh, agricultural policy. You want to call it a common agricultural policy, that's fine. But we've got to look at somewhat of a common or trilateral agricultural policy where our agricultural policies are not conflicting, but an agricultural policy that really complements each other. If you, if you look at the chart there, or the graph there, we talk about um, uh, the development, especially in Mexico. But I want to make the point because uh, I'm here in the United States. Uh, uh, my feeling, and you look at it, the U.S. agricultural sector is, is stagnated. It's, uh, it's stalled. Agricultural policy in this country is based on protectionism. Uh, you look at the cool, the country of labeling, country of origin labeling. Our view is it's, it's protectionism, raw protectionism. This is the U.S. agricultural policy. And we feel that, you know, like we have to make changes in Mexico, but you have to make changes here in the U.S. And so this is why we're talking about uh, a change, a trilateral, trilateral agricultural policy. And we're looking, so going forward, again, what we feel is that we have to move, move from being competitors to being partners in agriculture. We feel that there's a lot of opportunities there that haven't been taken in events. Where there's a lot of complementarity that's in, in agriculture uh, that we have to take advantage of. Um, the, I, I don't remember if you, Dr., if you mentioned um, labor in one of your questions, but uh, you know, the labor issues. What's happening in uh, the, the meat plants in the U.S.? Meat plants in the U.S., a lot of Mexican uh, uh, workers, and a lot of them, as we recognize, are not completely here legally. The labor component, we need the development of labor, we need the development of jobs in the Mexican, in the Mexican market. We feel this can move forward. But we see this then as the, the ability, again, as I said, to move from a competitor to partners. We see that this is a, we need to move and look at a common or a trilateral agricultural policies where policies aren't conflicting, policies aren't uh, uh, supporting protectionism, the policies are one that support uh, 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 partnership 
and where we can be uh, partners uh, move forward for uh, equitable uh, development in the North American agricultural economy. Thank you. Well, my gosh, it's good. <clears throat> I guess it's my turn to moderate this discussion. Uh, it's been a fascinating series of presentations from, and wonderful from Carlos's overview of sort of macroeconomic indicators to Juan's discussion of the role of uh, the private sector in these negotiations and the way that it has impacted the formation of NAFTA to the actual, the practicalities of what competition means and looks like within an industry. I mean, I, as an academic, I had no idea that things could be that complicated. And as an academic, I confront the question of, you know, what am I going to ask uh, that hasn't already been answered? Uh, so I'm going to start with a typical <laughs> scholarly ploy, which is to ask an impossible and probably useless question, but one that I think is <laughs> maybe significant some way. And this is the following. What about cause and effect? We've been speaking of the NAFTA era, as though everything that's happened within the last 20 years in this trilateral economy has been a consequence of NAFTA. And I think it's worth asking, you know, what about other factors? What really was the specific role of NAFTA and that uh, treaty? We can speak of globalization over the same 20 years. You spoke of geography and the neighborhood uh, that maybe made it possible and other kinds of factors that might have been at work. So let's just sort of differentiate between the cause and effect relations of NAFTA on these situations and also sort of the other complicating factors that might have led to some movements in this direction without a NAFTA, theoretically at least. So that said, um, let me observe that it's been said that NAFTA you know, increases efficiency through competition. Uh, competition creates winners and losers. And Carlos, let me begin with you. Um, who would qualify as the losers in Mexico? Uh, and what is their attitude toward NAFTA? I mean, it may be that in this room people embrace NAFTA, but maybe outside the room in other parts of Mexico, that's not always the case. So what would be your judgment about that? Losers and winners, I'll, mm. I'll answer both. <laughs> uh, first, what is very interesting is that in terms of public opinion, NAFTA in Mexico is very popular. And that's a very big difference with the U.S. In the U.S. you have a relatively negative opinion of NAFTA. In Mexico... Starting in the election of 94, Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas stopped talking about NAFTA because he realized that people were cherishing one of the uh, areas where for there being a lot of winners, which is a consumer. I mean, people want to buy a, a cheap television or whatever, and it's very, been very clear to Mexican consumers that it's being associated with NAFTA. I won't say it was caused with NAFTA. I'll go to your first large question at the end of my answer. But it certainly was associated with NAFTA. The fact that the economy was open created an amazing consumer surplus in many areas. And I think that they've been the winners. Who've been the, the losers? Well, the losers were all those sectors, uh, manufacturing in, in particular, that were unprepared for such a swift opening. Because contrary to other reforms we've done in Mexico, including energy reform, we've always been do, we, all, we tend to do reforms so slowly that at the end their impact might not be as, as important as we were expecting. In this case, it was an extremely swift change. It started before, as Kenneth very clearly 
show it for the case of energy. For in the case of, of meat, it started really with GATT and then several other openings of the, of, of, of the frontier. But even with GATT, what had been an extremely closed economy suddenly became a really, relatively quickly open economy. And Kenneth very quickly explained us how difficult that is at the beginning. And there were many, if you look at the exports, of, of, total exports of, of meat, most of them are from Sukarne. <laughs> <laughs> so, in fact, the success story is Sukarne. I don't know how many other corpses uh, were left behind. So, uh, they're, they're, they're dead cattle. <laughs> <laughs> I was referring to them, of course. So, there was a significant change in the structure of the Mexican industry, and that led to many sectors. The most evident one is textiles, where a lot of businessmen got broke. And... Even if you look at terms, in terms of employment, it's very interesting. If you look at the total employment of the manufacturing sector, 94, uh, 2013, it's more or less the same level than before. I mean, there was a lot of new investment, extremely productive, this new investment, with not so many workers. And there were a lot of firms that were destroyed, and a lot of employment was lost. So I think that would be the main losers. Could I add something on that? Yes, you can. Yeah, I, I think one of the things we're talking about winners, losers, NAFTA's effect, one of the things that I don't see people discussing is the accompanying legislation. You mentioned earlier about the, the structure, the monopolies or the oligopolies in, in, in the country. Uh, the, the, the accompanying legislation was never really there in NAFTA, uh, and uh, at least in the, uh, specifically in the agricultural sector, and that created a lot of distortions. Uh, we, the opening was not uh, logical. We had some sectors that uh, further down the, the value chain were open before the, uh, uh, the suppliers. So I think that, that that's an important point, and I think that should be looked at later on today when you're talking about the TPP. Are we really going to align policy with the, the negotiations? I think the issue of the border has, of course, been, and you know, being in San Diego today, I mean, it's a perfect example of what we're discussing. The fact of the matter is that the border has been a, a sore point for many, many generations. And the fact of the matter is that it does have solutions. There are solutions to a much more efficient border crossing system for both people and, uh, and, and products. And those solutions have to do with technology, they have to do with infrastructure, they have to do with investment. And if we give it the proper priority, I am sure that we can achieve the, the, the covering the different sensitivities on both sides. And I won't debate the sensitivities. I think everyone is entitled to his sensitivities. But they can be covered and they can be achieved. And yet you cannot become, a, it be not a handicap, but actually a big asset. Because our big asset, as I repeat, is our geography and you see it, for example, here in San Diego, in a few weeks, we, uh, construction of this terminal in Otay will be starting. It's a perfect example. I mean, it'll, it'll allow the crossing back and forth in the border for uh, airline passengers in a much more efficient way. Okay. It's taken several years to get all the regulatory uh, compliance requirements in place. <coughs> And they're now in place, and construction will be starting in a couple of weeks. Well, it's going to completely transform the logistics of people moving back and forward, and it's also going to have the opportunity of building around San Diego a, an Asian capability, a South American capability, and, and of course, a much greater uh, crossover back and forth for tourism and economy and so on. So I, I just use it as an example. It was, it's been an enormously complex initiative to put in place, but it's now in place.
And I'd just like to mention something because I think it's, uh, well, it sounds a little romantic, but it, it actually is true. The, 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 the one who did the project, the, 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 the architect who's passed away, very well-known Mexican architect by the name of Ricardo Leoreta, greatly admired. It's the first case that a project of this sort goes to the San Diego Board of Approval. I don't know the name of the, of this, of the structure, but I mean the ones who have to approve. Unanimously approved. And the title of it, I think, is very beautiful. It's called The Gateway to the Californias. And I think that was, that was his last uh, name that he put on the project. And I think it says a world about what we, can, we are able to do. Precisely. I'm the moderator. I'm going to end up with one comment about collaboration, center about political will. No, seriously, the number of participants needs to expand and include not only the private sector, but workers and campesinos and others. It needs to be an up from the bottom process as well as a top-down process. I'm done. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.